Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from the Gospel according to John, chapter 15 and beginning in verse 1. As I was uh, working on this text for this week, it became apparent as the week went along uh, that covering verses 1 through 17 was going to be difficult over the past 29 years that I've been with you, I have preached on this passage before, and I really should have known better. And so what I plan to do this morning is to read the text as it is printed in the bulletin, but I'm only going to cover the first eight verses today, and then next week we will uh, cover verses 9 through 17. So I invite you once again to turn in your Bibles to follow along as I read. From John chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in uh, me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in His love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends, for everything that I have learned from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, love each other. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. Over the years, we have emphasized that one of the key elements of biblical interpretation is context. When was the text written? To whom was it written? Who was speaking? What was taking place historically? Where was the action taking place? And so on. So, for example, the text before us today is one with which many of us are familiar. We 
have read it many times, as it stands, apart from its context, it's a lovely saying of Jesus. Many of us, I think, are visual people. We love and enjoy a good metaphor, and it helps us gain insight into concepts that might otherwise be difficult to digest. And when a good metaphor is applied, it helps to open our minds to the nuances of what the speaker is conveying. This picture of Jesus as the vine and his disciples as the branches is filled with all sorts of possibilities for us to explore. But we don't always spend time dwelling upon the context of the passage. This teaching would sound very different to us if it was in the context of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, for example. Or it would sound different if, if, if it was part of an answer that Jesus gave to an inquiring religious figure or to a Roman official. It would sound different if one of the apostles had written it in a letter to one of the churches. The context is a filter through which we look upon the passage and it lends something to our discussion and understanding. And so it's important for us to remember the context as Jesus declares this to his disciples and ultimately to us. So it is Passover, and the disciples have just eaten their last meal with Jesus. Their Lord has washed their feet. He has announced that a traitor is in their midst. And that traitor has departed the room to betray Jesus to the authorities, and Jesus has countered that somber mood by offering words of encouragement and promise to the other disciples. And while he has told them that he will be leaving them, it's not without a purpose. It is so he can prepare a place for them, so that they will one day be where he is. And he has promised to send another comforter to them, the Holy Spirit, who will not only be with them, but will dwell within them. The Spirit will bring to their remembrance all that Jesus has taught them. And the Spirit will be an abiding peace for them. And then at the end of chapter 14, where we left off last time, Jesus says to the disciples, let us go from here. Now we often over, skip over a statement like that. Those few words probably don't even register with us because the very next verse is Jesus saying, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. But think about that particular night. Context. This was Passover. Passover was celebrated on the 14th day of the lunar month. Each lunar month was roughly 28 days. And each one began with a new moon. So the night of Passover would have had a full moon. And as Jesus and his disciples depart the upper room and begin to make their way through the streets of Jerusalem, headed towards the Garden of Gethsemane, they do so under the shimmering light of a full moon. This was springtime. And in portions of the hills that made up the mount upon which Jerusalem was perched, there were vineyards. And so it's not difficult for us to picture the master teacher with his students making his way, coming upon a vineyard, and seizing the opportunity to offer yet one more lesson. Here is something that every one of these disciples 
can comprehend. Here is a lesson that will stay with them forever. The evening's been full of so much already, but no one will ever forget the manner in which Jesus paused along the way to His rendezvous with His attackers, and yet He took one more opportunity to teach. Now in several places in the Old Testament, there exists an image of God and the people of God. It is an image that is found in the Psalms as well as in the Prophets. And Israel is pictured as a planting of the Lord, a vineyard specifically, that has been transplanted from Egypt. And every possible advantage has been given to the vineyard to grow and to prosper and mature. And God is seen as the vine dresser or the keeper of the vineyard. And so we are assured that the very best care that could possibly be given has been given. And yet the vineyard fails. The sweet nectar that one would expect as a byproduct of God's unparalleled horticultural skills never materializes, and in the end, the vineyard is destroyed. But we also find in the Old Testament accounts a flicker of hope dancing in the background. Psalm 80 says this, Return to us, O God Almighty, Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down, it is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, O Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. Now that's also part of the context that we find hanging in the moonlight as Jesus offers these thoughts to his disciples. And we assume this because of the fact that he does not say to them, I am like a vine and you all are like branches, what he says is, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. And yes, this is the seventh and final of Jesus' I am statements. And this one, Jesus utters solely in the presence of his disciples. But it is truly significant, as these disciples are soon to be transformed into apostles, who will bear the gospel message to the world. And they will testify that the whole of Scripture was never pointing to Israel as the hope of the world, but it was pointing to Jesus as the hope of the world. Because with this I am statement, Jesus is laying claim to being what Israel was not. The failure that Israel offered in terms of living up to her call as the people of God, Jesus is in the very process of fulfilling completely. Just as Paul refers to Jesus as the second Adam who takes away the sins of the world, so Jesus is giving indication that He is the new Israel. He is the one who will live up to all of the expectations that God the Father had for His people who were extended the grace of God yet failed miserably to live out their part of the covenant. 
Again and again, they turned away from the Lord. They worshipped other gods. They failed to keep God's commands. Well, this Israel, this one who strives with God, will not resist God, but will obey. He will be all that God has called him to be. And it is in this context that we must hear these words of Jesus. Now, this passage is one that should bring great comfort to every believer. For Jesus is saying several very positive things to his disciples. He's telling them that they are going to be productive or fruitful in their lives. Verse 5, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And he's telling us that they will, or telling them that they will be most productive when they submit themselves to the Lord and allow the Lord to do the work. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He's telling them that God the Father will be working in their lives to make them even more fruitful as time goes along. Verse 2, every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, or that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. He's telling them that they have already been cleansed by the power of His Word. Already you are clean, He says in verse 3, because of the Word that I have spoken to you. He's telling them that when they meditate upon His Word and learn to live life according to His Word, their prayer life will dramatically change. Verse 7, if you abide in Me and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. He's telling them that they will magnify the glory of God by allowing the love of Christ to dwell in them richly. Verse 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The problem is that many of us, when we read this passage, gravitate towards those verses that seem to be a bit more threatening. We hear him say, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown in the fire, and burned. And we immediately begin to make some assessment, find ourselves coming up short, and we begin to wonder if we might fall into that category. Again, we want to remember the context Judas Iscariot walked with Jesus and the other disciples for more than three years. And during that time, he was exposed to the ministry of Jesus. All of the teachings, all of the miraculous healings and signs, all of the private moments alone at the end of the day, all the opportunities that one could possibly want from the master gardener, were provided to Judas, and yet in the end, he rejected it all and became a traitor. He embodied the response of most of Israel. And Jesus was fully aware of what was going to happen. Remember back when he said that when he was in the middle of washing the disciples' feet, and he came to Peter, who initially resisted that moment, when the Master came to wash his feet, and Jesus said, the one who has bathed, does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. And then John the Gospel writer adds, for he knew who was to betray him. And that's why he said not all of you are clean. 
So in the midst of their tight circle, there was one who was not elect. He was selected by Jesus because of his propensity towards evil. But Judas was not a saved individual who fell away from grace. And this is important for us to understand because there's a temptation to look upon this imagery of the vine and the branches and to conclude that it is possible for people to lose their salvation if they're not fruitful. We have to be careful that we not push the metaphor beyond the intention. Jesus is assuring his disciples that they have responded to the call of God upon their lives and they will not fall away. They're already clean. What they will experience in their lives is the pruning that every healthy plant needs in order to be as fruitful as it can possibly be. Now, this is not their work. This is the work of the master gardener. This is God's task. And when we as branches go through those episodes in our lives where it feels as though we are all alone or moments when the Word of God is correcting us or we are having to come to terms with the demands of Jesus upon our lifestyle or other moments when everything we seem to want is the opposite of what God wants. Those are moments when God's pruning shears are hard at work. It's not always a pleasant experience. It can be extremely painful. It can be humbling. It can be a time when our resolve to follow Jesus is pushed to the limit. But those are the moments when we need to realize that God is not making some capricious decisions about our futures. But God is engaged in activity in our lives that will transform us more and more into the vessels He wants us to be. God is doing a loving thing in our lives by pruning away the dead wood. He's cleaning out the fungus and cutting away the sucker branches that steal away vital nutrients that will be critical for the branch that is set to bear fruit. And when Jesus speaks about those branches that do not bear fruit, He's making reference to those like Judas. The disciples are about to embark on a journey where it will be difficult to discern between those who are genuinely connected to Christ and those who have every appearance of being genuine but are not. The way to know is to look at the way in which they love and whether they continue to abide in Christ. Remember the context. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Jesus said to the disciples, Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Sometimes we are mystified over an individual who has given every evidence that they are a follower of Christ. And then we discover something so out of character with what it means to be a Christian that we conclude they have fallen away from grace. That's the wrong conclusion. Those who do such things are simply being exposed for what they really are, which is imposters. Judas did not fall away from grace. He was never a recipient of God's regenerative grace. He used to steal from the communal purse. 
He was the one who criticized Mary for lavishly anointing the feet of Jesus with a pound of pure nard. He attempted to make it sound as though he was interested in the needs of the poor, but his only interest was whether or not he might get his hands on some more money. He betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He was never one of the redeemed. And likewise, when John the Apostle writes his epistles to the churches and he was warning them about those who were working mischief in their midst, he spoke about their lack of love as evidence of their true nature and the fact that they had fallen away from their communion. The fact that they fell away is not a sign that it's possible to lose your salvation. It's a sign that they were never a recipient of God's saving grace. True branches, those who have been called by God and are among the elect, do not fail to abide in the Lord. This is the posture we are to assume as true branches. Abiding is not about our doing things that will somehow earn us a place on the vine. Abiding is a state of being. It is a growing awareness that God is at work in us in ways that surprise us. It is a growing awareness that God's love for us is beyond our comprehension and that there is a growing love within us that we cannot explain because it's new to us. Abiding is learning to dwell in a position that is not about our being in charge, but recognizing that God is in charge and is fully engaged in our lives. Abiding is learning to stop our resistance towards God because ultimately there's nothing that we can do to overcome God. If God has chosen us, God will work out His purpose in us. This is what Paul writes to the Philippians to the Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Beloved, our salvation is not a stagnant thing. It is a dynamic thing. It is a growing in Christ. It is a developing thing where God is at work in us, transforming us from one degree of glory to another changing our hearts, changing our minds, strengthening us in the Spirit, developing in us a hunger for His Word, establishing in us a desire to serve, leading us to the lost and giving us words to say, and on and on. This is to my Father's glory, Jesus says, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. We began by emphasizing context and perhaps we need to come full circle and realize that we live as disciples of Christ in a very real context as well. And while our context is different from that of the first century and while our individual contexts all differ from one another, they are also similar in many ways. We have families, we have work environments, we have neighbors, we have friends and antagonists. We live in America in a time of unparalleled technological development. These things and many others make up our context. So what does this life of abiding in Christ look like in our context? Do the people we meet, the people we work with, the people we live near or sit across from at 
Thanksgiving, do they all know that we are disciples of Christ? And if not, then why not? Do the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart and the things that we do, do they not reflect the Master? Jesus' point is that if we abide in Him, they will. And His further point is that if we abide in Him, we will bear fruit for the kingdom. Now this will be our emphasis next week, but let us come to realize now that our abiding in Christ and His abiding in us serves as the foundation for our fruitfulness in our day and in our time and in our context. So as we come to a close today, let me invite you to bow your heads with me and pray for a moment.